Here comes part one of a three-part series that was supposed to be a one-part series. <laughs> well, and there's going to be yeah. a, a slight delay between parts one and two because it is my son's spring break towards the end of this month, March of 2016, and we're going to be taking a road trip to the Grand Canyon and Denver and all over the place. So what we wanted to do, Force and I wanted to go ahead and get part one out the door, and then we're going to bring you parts two and three at the beginning of April somewhere near the end of the first week of April because I'll need time to finish it. So what follows is one of the most requested stories we've ever had via email, Facebook, Twitter. In fact, I had two requests just in the past five days for it. And we decided, you know what, let's go ahead and do it. Well, certainly it has been with our listeners that we love from down under because it is probably the biggest John Doe mystery in Australia and perhaps the world. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. Tis all a checkerboard of nights and days, where destiny with men for pieces plays. Hither and thither moves, and mates and slays. And one by one back in the closet lays. A selected quatrain from Edward Fitzgerald's first edition translation of the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. Join us tonight for part one of three on the mystery of the Somerton Man. All right, so this all started in November of 1948. And this investigation has gone on now for 68 years. I hope the math's right on that. Speaking of fact-checking. Look at the... 1948 <laughs> to 2016, is that 68? Uh... Some, some of our listeners, some of those ones that have like calculator brains in their cars are like, yep, but not me. <laughs> no, but you, you know what? It's the first of the month, December 1st, 1948. 19. Hang on, I'm using my calculator. 68 years ago. <laughs> Didn't you say that? I did, but I just okay. wanted to double check All the right. math. There have been a lot of TV shows about this. There's a lot of documentary footage. And as we always say, you're going to find links to everything with the show notes for the episode and also more specifically on our website, where with this particular series, which we, as we indicated, is going to be three parts, we're going to have images that a lot of people have never seen, a ton of them, because we have gone deeper on this story than we have. Just about anything, which is hard to believe, even for me, considering how much we've done. Maybe it's up there with Oak Island. I'm say <laughs> I, well, that. that was – I don't know if we'll ever reach those heights or yeah. depths, depths or yeah. lows because <laughs> uh, that, uh, that was a grueling uh, birth-giving session. But no, certainly we're going to dive deep on this one. And you know what? I don't know if a lot of people in North America know about this, even though at the time a call was put out to help solve this case all over the world internationally. Well, this story, it, it is a famous story, but yeah, there's going to be people that haven't heard of it. It has alternately been referred to as the Somerton Man mystery. Right. And also, as we mentioned in the beginning of the show, Tamam Shud or Taman Shud from, from a very famous book. Yes, meaning... I, I believe uh, the per, in Persian, uh, Tamam means end and Shud is a auxiliary verb that means it has taken place. So it has ended, it is finished. It's the past yeah, there you tense. Go. There you go. Okay. Yeah. So, and when we're saying the tamam, the two different ways, and you can't tell the difference, one ends with an N and one ends with an M. The ending with the M is the correct one. The N is the result of a typo in an Adelaide newspaper from where this story takes place, Adelaide, Australia. So if you haven't heard of this story, 
And you think, well, I, I can't believe they've made this. I don't even know what this is. It's going to be a three-parter. Let me tell you what. This story takes so many twists and turns, even to this day, even with relation to the people investigating it. It's just it boggles the mind. It well, boggles the mind. I'll put it this way. If you believe all the connected dots, then it's a huge story with murder, spying implications, the Cold War, World War II, the end of World War II. It's a huge story. If you only believe certain dots, then it's a really interesting love story. If you then whittle it down to maybe just one dot where, well, a guy died, <laughs> then... I think the amazing thing about this is that it does have all these other dots. You could connect to it. And if they're not connectable, that's amazing to me that, that a simple act – well, look, everyone dies. But the fact that this one individual did and this tremendous conspiracy theory and all these differing stories that sprung up around it, that's amazing to me that this, this story has legs like this. Well, there's a lot of facts that just whatever theory you're coming down to, when you when you look at this story and you say – you know what? I that's this is the one I think it is. I you know, I think about like Amelia Earhart when we went through right. that and we distinctly covered three hypotheses on that yeah. one. And we made a big point of using the word hypotheses instead of theory. Although it was <laughs> yeah. later pointed out to me either is correct. Either is correct unless you're talking specifically about science. Right. Much like a lot of pronunciations as yes. we've debated constantly and still continue to do. But I'll say this, the format of the story is kind of like uh, there, there's a television program here in the states called 48 Hours, and there's also... Dateline. Dateline's another 2020, 48 Hours. Yeah. Yes. And, and you could tell the way they edit these, and, and we certainly know a little bit about editing, is that the first half of the show, or the first 15, 20 minutes, it's like, oh, this guy did it. Yes, come on. He did it. It's, it's over. And then, but that's not the rest of the story. Yeah. And then you hear the other side, like, oh, wait a minute. Maybe the other... Maybe he didn't do it. Maybe the other guy did it. Yeah. The story, as you do the research on this, is kind of like that, is that you, you take a line like, oh, come on, it's this angle. It's got to be. Look at all the things that have come up. And it's like, well, those things that have come up are not maybe that factual, a little bit shaky in their uh, verisimilitude. So then you start believing the other thing. And then when you get to the end of it, you're not sure what you believe. Exactly. Other than what we do know is that there is a dude, he did pass away on a beach in South Australia. Five foot 11, gray eyes, mousy ginger hair with graying on the sides and receding in the front. Somewhere between the age of 40 and 50, 165 to 175 pounds. He was missing 18 teeth. Really? Yes. Ouch. Well, first of all, we're going to talk about why it's called the Somerton Man, the Somerton Case. Somerton is a small stretch of beach outside of Adelaide in South Australia. This is where this man was found. So the case is often referred to as the Somerton Man Case. It is also referred to as the Tamam Should case, which we're going to explain directly yeah. in this one, in part one, in just a few minutes. <laughs> so hang in there. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So here we go. 5 p.m., November 30th, 1948. There's a gentleman and his wife taking a walk on the beach in Somerton. John Bain Lyons, known as Jack, and his wife are walking on the beach in the evening in the Seaside Resort of Somerton, near Adelaide. As they're walking down the beach, they see a man lying down kind of in the sand with the back of his head up against the base of the seawall. Now, at this time, when you look at this case and you start to look online, you're going to see pictures of rocks along the beach there. 
you're not going to see a seawall, but the rocks are in front of the wall. There's some rocks in front of it and now up above it now. So all you see are these big rocks. They're erosion prevention rocks, boulders essentially. But at the time, the sand went right up to a small wall. And this guy was lying back with his head against the wall. He was smartly dressed in a suit. He had a tie on. And as this couple walked by, as Jack Lyons and his wife walked by, they saw him slowly raise his right hand and drop it back down. They made an assumption that he was probably just drunk and tired and taking a little break. The witnesses have described the man kind of laying down with his head propped up against the base of the seawall. And as Scott described, he, his arm raised up and flopped back down. He, people thought he was drunk. Plus, there was a lot of mosquitoes. This is the first night of summer down under, being December 1st. The mosquitoes didn't seem to bother him, so people thought, like, wow, he's really drunk, or he's just dead to the world. Yes, that's right. There was actually another set of witnesses, another couple, that saw him about 15 minutes later, and they said the same thing. They actually even joked to each other that he must be dead because they saw the mosquitoes swarming around him, and they just kind of assumed that he was drunk. And I, I can personally say, having, uh, you know, because like I said— <laughs> would passed out no, so, no, no. so much. But that, living, yeah. in, living in New York as long as I did, right. over the years, I saw a lot of people in this condition right. in parks. Where, and I'm talking well-dressed business people just laying down in the grass, seemingly drunk. <laughs> Although they were moving. In most cases, yeah. they're moving. And the ones that aren't are people that you see sleeping there in, yeah. in the same spot every day. You mean Central Park? Not just Central Park. Riverside no, just, Park, up wow. and down the West Side Highway. Anywhere there's a patch of grass. Well, that's this I case. I mean, not all. I mean, <laughs> every single patch of, of Manhattan, grass. I'm saying. Yeah. You know, over the years, I saw people. You know. Well, this is not that big of a deal for the folks that saw him because it's kind of the same condition. Here's, here's a well-dressed man. Looks like maybe he's had a few too many or just taking a break, uh, but he's just laying down on the sand. And in fact, to the one couple, they thought he looked like he was taking kind of a, a, a clumsy, drunken drag off of his cigarette. And they think, well, he'll just sleep it off. So Jack Lyons, by the way, who is a jeweler, as I, as I think. Right. Uh, he, he only lived a few blocks from the beach. That's right. Uh, in Glen Elg. That's the little area of town that's right next to the Summerton Beach. And it's 6.30 in the morning. Yeah, he went out for his morning swim. That's right. He went for a swim with a friend. And when he showed up, he saw a couple of guys on horses over by where the body had been. And there was a little bit of a commotion. And he thought, oh, I'm going to go check this out. And he went over there, and it was a couple of horse trainers, jockeys who had business taking these horses out on the beach every morning and uh, walking them or running them. Or yeah, they, give them, uh, they exercise them, but it's a morning ride. Yeah. So everyone's doing their morning constitutionals. They're out for a ride or a swim. Exactly. And Jack sees the the body is still there. And I believe somebody goes over and picks up the leg and rigor mortis has set in. Yeah, he's a little stiff. So, and, <laughs> yeah, so literally. But that but he notices, hey, that's the guy from last night. And he's still here. Yeah. And the jockeys are like, we, you know, we got to go. We have a schedule. Whatever. And he's like, yeah. I'm going to call the cops. I'm yeah, he'll take, take care of this. Right. So he calls the police. The police come and investigate. They make their report. They take down all the paperwork. We're going to get way into the weeds on this as this multi-part series unfolds, just all the circumstances of how things were found and what was found and that sort of thing. We're kind of trying to do the broad strokes tonight. So just stick with us. Don't worry. We'll come back if you feel like we're missing some things. So the cops come. And they pick him up. The The body is taken to the Royal Adelaide Hospital. And at that point, a doctor comes out of the hospital to the ambulance at about 9.40 a.m. on December 1st, 1948, makes a quick examination and determines that the man is definitely dead. There's yeah. not much point in taking him into the hospital. <laughs> right. So they take him straight to the morgue 
or mortuary, I guess. Is uh, morgue, yeah, no? morgue. Yeah. I think, I think mortuary is where they uh, they get you ready for planting. Oh yeah, you're yeah. right. Well, let's talk about his appearance first. First of all, this guy we already described his height, his weight, what he looked like. What we didn't tell you was that he was an extremely healthy looking man. Well, he very natty, very nicely dressed. Yes. Uh, nice, you know, trousers, jacket. Well, not super tie. nice. Min, min, middle class. Well, he's, he's not dressed for. He's but I'm not saying dressed he's not dressed like a millionaire, I'm saying. Yeah, no, but I'm he, saying, I'm, yeah. I'm only pointing that out because you said very nicely dressed. I don't want to paint the picture that he was an upper class person. He was a, a middle class person well, of, by uh, all accounts. Yeah, no, of the time, though. What I'm saying is that he's not, he's not got board shorts on and flip flops. He's got nicely polished shoes. A tie and a shirt. I mean, you know, he could have been at the office. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, he's business attire appropriate. Yes. Also, physically, when I said he's healthy looking, what I mean is that he was described as having sort of a wedge-shaped body where he had very broad shoulders and a narrow waist, and he looked something like a gymnast or possibly even a dancer, which yeah, is Yeah, he was in shape. Yeah, he yeah. was in great shape and notably had very well-pronounced, strong-toned, high calf muscles to the point where the men doing the investigation of of his body thought that he might be a ballet dancer. There's several reports, and and you may have to clear this up here, but of course there's a coroner doing his investigation. There's also a senior pathologist who's called in to take a look. That's right. And we'll get to their names later. But And there's also a taxidermist a little later on called in to examine the body and also make a plaster cast of it. Yes. Which we'll talk about in a a second here. But they all examine and they notice the same features. He has dystonia of the toes, kind of, where his his toes are kind of wedge-shaped, if you can imagine that. And what one of the uh, medical officers there described it as is, is either uh, sometimes women or dancers who have to fit their toes into tight pointed shoes with a heel on them and with a lot of activity. You see that in dancers, like ballet dancers, men and women, but they have the high, tight, well-defined calf muscles or long-distance runners. Right. So that was the determination was that this guy is physically fit. He does something regularly that puts him in good shape. But it's also some physical identifiers here. So they're starting to paint a picture of who this guy is. And he had a genetic defect with relation to his lateral incisors not being present. So the teeth next to his two center teeth in the front essentially were kind of fangs. Uh, this is a – they're pointed. And you you know people like this. You've seen it. You just hadn't ever – probably hadn't ever really thought about it. I certainly hadn't. Uh, it's less than 2 percent of the population. Right. It's kind of rare – and it's called hypodontia. Yes, hypodontia. Thank yeah, you. It's so, hypo means less. You're missing. You're missing some teeth. There's another condition, of course, the opposite, where you have several more teeth than you need. Right, like a shark. Right. <laughs> well, no, they they keep replacing them. You're not you're not no, biting rocking chairs. So, uh, <laughs> but in this particular gentleman, uh, that was a distinguishing physical trait. Yeah, hereditary. Yes, it's entirely genetic. And that wasn't the only one he had. He had an unusual shape to his ears, inside the ear lobe, not the inner ear, but the outer part of the ear lobe, where he had the, – there's two chambers just inside the ear. One is about where the hole is that leads to your inner ear. Yes, and, the, the area around – the indentation around the actual ear hole, that's the cavum. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And then the part just above that, there's usually a little ridge or something, and the part just above that is called the simba, C-Y-M-B-A. In most people... Of the Caucasian population. Of the Caucasian population, exactly. The cavum on the bottom is much larger and the simba is much smaller. In 1% to 2% of people, it's inverted. 
So with respect to the Somerton man, his Simba was larger than his cavum, and this is very rare, in addition to the fact that he was missing his lateral incisors. Right. Just, just a little information that's, that's going to come up again later. Right, because again, remember, it's hereditary. And then his clothes, what he had, as Forrest said, he was, he was well-dressed. He had a knit pullover, a double-breasted coat, wasn't wearing clothes for going to the beach, right. which is important to note. He did not have a hat. Which you think, oh, big deal, he didn't no, have a hat. No, it's unusual for the and time. In 1948 yeah. in Australia, for a gentleman, it's, it is unusual for him not to have a hat. He also had a torn pocket on his trousers that had been neatly repaired. And more importantly, and this is where we're just tipping the iceberg here on where things start to get weird with this case. One of the first things to know is that all the labels, all the manufacturer's labels, had been torn out of his clothing. His clothing was essentially untraceable, and he had no identification of any kind on his person. Well, let me let me make a finer point on that. They were clipped so delicately. That wasn't just ripped off right. in haste, as in maybe a murder scene. But now they don't know. They don't know what this is. Did he pass away naturally? Did he get some help in, in passing away? Or did he just pass away with, by his own doing? So there's several options they're looking at, but they still aren't getting much information just from the guy. And he also had an aluminum comb. He had another comb, which was probably made of Bakelite. And yeah. there's some of this information that we're sharing with you. We garnered from an interview with an individual who we're going to be telling you about later. Mm -hmm. um, but he he made the point that they probably didn't have vinyl combs at that point. So we're going to say that it was probably a Bakelite comb, which is kind of like black plastic. He had a pack of Wrigley's Juicy Fruit Gum. Half gone. Half gone. And here's the thing about that. That gum was available in Australia, but at the time it was not traditionally chewed by anyone older than a teenager. And the juicy fruit flavor in particular was considered an, an American flavor. Right. Like blackjack. Like blackjack. <laughs> yes. Somebody, to give somebody our commented and, and, and loved the uh, blackjack. And I thought, if you're a real gum fan, you'll know the uh, fruit stripe. That was our, our kids' gum. Yeah. But it's kind of like that. That's what we're saying is that when we were kids, fruit stripe gum was more of a kid's gum, you could say. And juicy fruit, at least in America when I was growing up, that was, yeah, adults were chewing that. But like Wrigley Spearmint. Double mint, those are your those are your adult gums, Beeman's, you know, some of your your classic gums here. But the point is is that they're looking for clues as to where is this guy from? Is he Australian? Is he European? Is he American? The aluminum comb, we'll talk about a little bit later, but that's more of an American product. That was not generally carried by Australians, other than during wartime by American GIs and soldiers would have them. Who were stationed in Australia at the time. Exactly. So these are some interesting items that they have found on the person, along with some cigarettes. That's right. He had a pack of cigarettes. I think, I can't be quoted on this. I'm not going to even bother to fact check this, but I yeah. think there were seven in the pack. Yes. And that the pack on the outside said... Army Club, yes, which is a, an inexpensive brand, and inside they were Conceitas or Conceitas, yes, cigarette, which is a more expensive brand of cigarette. Yeah, K E N S I T A S, Conceitas, which is a UK brand. Yeah, but but I think I looked it up. I wasn't sure that this was correct, but I think the modern day price or the last price offered was uh, what nine pounds. So, <laughs> which if you double or or nearly double that into American dollars, like. That is, uh, what, $18 a pack? That's crazy. So so in any case, he's got seven really expensive cigarettes in a cheapo pack, which is – that's odd because usually the opposite is that I know people that buy cheap cigarettes and put them into the expensive pack. Right. So he's yeah. making a conscious effort or apparently 
making right. an, a conscious effort to appear to have less means than he does. Well, or, there's there's or, a lot of yeah, there's a lot of things that can be read into this because it's not what you normally do, but were the cigarettes given to him? Right. And later on, did the cigarettes possibly cause his death because they had something in them? There's a theory about that, and the cigarettes yeah. were never tested for poison. Right. And they, they're gone. Yeah. Everything's gone. <laughs> <laughs> but they're, they're collecting an inventory. So at least we know, you know, because it's, it was filed all into a police report, that we know what was on him. That's right. At the time. Now, there is one other little item that lends itself to the name that this case is often referred to by. The pack of matches? No. <laughs> that was, wait, that, <laughs> that, that was also found on him, right? Uh, yeah. You know what? We should cover the matches. Let's yeah. do that first. There were the, the matches were Bryant and May matches, which yeah. was a company that made matches. Right. It's not- In England? Know. Yes. Yeah. Not American matches. So what you're seeing here is that there's some items that seem to be American, some British. It's a, it's a mishmash. It's not totally all in one place. Yeah. Their factory was in London, but their matches were available all over the UK. Right. According to- one of the experts that we talked to later, and you're going to hear from in part two of our series, the matches were not discovered when he was on the beach or when an inventory was taken of the possessions on him. They turned up later. Yeah. And that's important because they had found a partially smoked cigarette on his right lapel. Yeah. He, did, he had one tucked behind his ear. He also had a cigarette tucked behind his yeah. ear. And they determined that... Or, or there was speculation that since he didn't have any matches, that someone else had been with him. See, no, yeah. Realize this this is a crime scene. So yes. every little detail that we're going over may not seem important, but it that's one, that's all you got with his story. Two, it could mean a big difference because did he light the match? Did someone light it for him? Was there somebody with him when he was about to expire? Right. So these are important things. But that was a big question because... If he had no matches, then somebody was there with him. And lit the cigarette at the yeah. very least yeah. with a nefarious intention or just loaned him a light or whatever. But the thing is, later, and I can't remember how much later it was. It may have even been a, a, a few weeks. Or I, I believe somebody was trying on the clothes to, or yeah. testing the other clothes. We'll, we'll get to that in a minute. But they found the matches. So the matches were there. So it was possible that he could have smoked a cigarette by himself. He may have even been smoking his knowingly smoking his last cigarette. They think one fell out of his mouth, half lit, and it kind of extinguished, right? Did, or did it burn his jacket? Uh, that that I never found out. I don't think it burned it. Okay. But it wasn't all the way. Yeah, it was, ha it was half smoked. By the way, an important note about the Conceitus. They aren't the, even though you pointed out how expensive they are, they are not the most expensive no. <laughs> cigarette <laughs> right. on the market, but they are more expensive than the Army Club cigarettes. Yes, which, again, that is could be another clue because the branding on that is... Army guys smoke these, soldiers smoke these, so uh, you, you could be a tough soldier you're, as well, smoke this brand. There's even like a British officer on the front pack, it, and I believe yes. the logo is, when you've smoked this, you know you've smoked something worthwhile, worth, worth smoking, something yes. of, some kind of tagline. But, but what's important with that is that, is this guy military? Because if he's military, well, then he's got records. They keep good records of their personnel. That's right. And, and so they're just trying to grab every little piece of evidence to find out who this guy is, because now they're thinking, this could be a homicide. This needs to be investigated. Yeah. In this case, it seems to be getting more complicated by the minute. A another important thing to note is that there, there, there was not a lot of disturbance in the sand around the body. 
Right. It didn't, it didn't seem like there had been a struggle. He was had slipped way down, and it's hard to say exactly what position he was in the night before when these couples were walking by and you know probably trying not to stare at him too much. But in the morning when they found him, he was laying almost all all the way flat with his chin resting on his chest because the back of his head was up against the seawall that we mentioned. And there is a theory that he suffered from asphyxiation because he, he for whatever reason, maybe he passed out or was unconscious or was ill or if he was poisoned or whatever happened, that his head sloped down. And when that happened, it closed off his airway and he was not conscious to be able to do anything about it. And maybe that that's what killed him. And we'll come back to different theories on what killed him later. The next thing that I want to talk about is the discovery of an unusual object tucked into the pocket watch pocket Pocket. or fob pocket (laughs) in his waistband of his trousers. For those of you who don't know, if you've ever worn jeans, okay, it's called the fifth pocket usually. Look in your right pocket. There'll be a tiny pocket. Nobody knows what that's for, but in the old days, you didn't wear your watch on your wrist, you more likely carried a pocket watch, and you put in that watch, and then you had a little chain that went to your, your vest buttonhole or something, or the fob. I want to ask you something. Yeah. I had read that this particular pocket was concealed kind of in the waist. Do you think it's exactly the same as the jean ones? Well, no, I had read, though, that it was integrated into the outside of the pocket. Because okay, you read that. Yeah, okay, well, yeah, because as long as you know it's a good fact, that's what I'm asking. Well, no, that's that's what I read, but yeah. I'm thinking about it in this manner because I did think about that because yeah. it makes a difference. Is was it trying to be hidden? Was it trying yeah, to be inside the band? That's what I'm asking. If you're carrying a watch, that's a really uncomfortable place to put the watch right. inside your band. If it really was a fob watch, right? If it was a pocket meant to conceal items, that's different, right? Which it's not been described as. It's been described as a watch pocket. Yeah, fo- yeah. Uh, right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So exactly. it'd be great if we fact checked every fact before we talk. <laughs> But since we're kind of improvising, a lot of times uh, things come up that we just want to make sure we're saying that. Eh, it's roulette, folks. Probably 40% of this is just BS. So, <laughs> but we leave it to you to kind of figure out which parts. That is not true. That is No, no. We, we make a great effort, but we do get caught, and it, and it stings us because we do try to make such an effort in at least relaying something that we can find a source on. Yes. No one was there. Well, there's people there. I'm talking about like our historical mysteries and stuff. We report on things that at least have a somewhat credible source or at least someone who's found uh, – who's done a lot of research on it that we believe is credible. That's all yes. we can do. Yes. And so – Yeah. But anyway, in so it makes – Right. It makes a big difference because it wasn't noticed at first. No, it wasn't. It was a cursory examination. Indeed. Yeah. And we all know what those lead to. <laughs> well, so this, down yeah. in the pocket, rolled up, so tightly mashed down into the bottom of it that it had to be removed with tweezers. Right. Was a little tiny piece of paper. And on this paper – was the text. You say it because I don't do accents. <laughs> Tom, well, there's no accent. It's just Tamam should. Tamam should. Well, I've been saying should for years. So. Well, the, again, I, if there's any Persian like speakers out there, you can, you can uh, write Scott an email. No. That's, uh, that's right. how I've heard it in, in interviews. Well, we just tonight, uh, we I were believe, told how yeah. to pronounce it too. Right. It? Yeah. There's a big mystery about what this means. This is not clear English and the detectives that are coming across it, everybody's finding it. What does this mean? And eventually the police reporter for the Adelaide advertiser, a man named Frank Kennedy recognized that the words were Persian and he called the police to suggest that they get a copy of the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. This is where we're supposed to tell you what the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam is. (laughs) Yeah, go ahead. 
Well, it's a book of poetry by a philosopher, poet, and astronomer. Omar Khayyam. Omar Khayyam, who's yeah. a very smart man. 11th century, way back. Yes, yeah. on the Wayback Machine. And this particular book was probably, or actually we can say it definitively later, but it yeah. was one of the more popular translations done by a man named Edward Fitzgerald. Right. Which is what 1853, opening... something like that? 1850, yeah. The, the, 1850s. The first one was 1859, and there was five editions, I think. Okay. And the first and the fifth were very similar. Because Kayam actually wrote... Rubaiyat is a collection of a particular type of poetry, and you're going to hear more on this from an expert in part two of our, our right. series. So I'm not going to go too far on it, but I will say that there were multiple quatrains. If you know what a quatrain is, it's four lines. It's poetic, so it's usually an A-A-B-A rhyming structure, right. often, but not always. Right. But that's what quatrain, I think from the French, Nostradamus, heard of him, wrote in oh, quatrains. Yeah, yeah those they're, they're called his quatrains. And so Rubaiyat means basically it's a plural in, in Persian. So it's the quatrains. Yes. The four-line poems of Omar Khayyam. Exactly. Okay. And there were many, many of them, and they weren't necessarily all included, and especially when these translations were done. In the first one, I think there were 75 quatrains, and in another one there was 101, and then in a, another one there was 150 at right. the most, I think. And we have various copies of, of it. There, there's one 19-page PDF, which we'll have a link to that you can yeah. look at if you want to read it. It's actually... It's good reading. It's wonderful reading. And oh, the book yeah. was very, very popular during World War II and after World War II. And it must have been popular with the baby boomers, too, because my mom had a copy. And I remember seeing it when I was growing up in the yeah. house. Well, it's kind of like uh, you, you've heard that book, uh, Chicken Soup for the Soul. Well, that was yeah. that was <laughs> that had a, a burst of popularity. And it kind of goes in and out of fashion for a while here. And, and maybe 68 years from now, it'll be popular again. But in this case, this at this time in the 40s, this was a popular book of poetry, but not it wasn't so well known, of course, that, you know, the police immediately knew what it was or recognized the phrase. So they're now trying to figure out after Kennedy calls in and he recommends that they get this, they find this copy of the book and they they're looking around trying to determine where it's from. And then a few months later, out of the blue, this guy who wanted to remain unnamed, right? Well, he he wished to remain anonymous. And in this case, and one other important instance, yeah. they granted his wish and just called him Mr. Francis. I believe the police just uh, Mr. let him Francis. know, Mr. Francis. Yeah. But the, it was his brother. The suspects. And one of them. But what the deal is here is that this guy didn't want to be connected to a murder, possibly. So right, and it was already getting to be kind of a big story in the area, probably, and he was like, I yeah. don't know. Well, no, the police had put out a large call. They were like, look, we need help with this. And so there was a lot of publicity around this area in South Australia, all over Australia, and eventually uh, internationally, they would send this guy's photo out because they have a picture of him. At least they have that. But anyway, this guy comes forward, Mr. Francis, the pseudonym. And, and rum rumor has it he was a doctor or a, a lab worker. He's a man of prominence, probably, and, and doesn't want to be connected to a murder, possibly. But he's got what he thinks is probably an important piece of evidence. Yeah. He found in his car... Six months earlier, I don't know how he narrowed it down to the day, but he said it was November 30th, which was the night that the man was first seen on the beach alive, a copy of the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. Yeah. And this copy sat in the back of his car for six months because – Well, his, it's in the footwell, so it's yeah. like down on the floor right? Yeah, in his, the back seat. Yeah, and I guess he thought his, it was his brother's copy. Yeah. His brother thought it was his copy. But so it was his, his car, right? Yeah, it was his okay. car, and I guess he – 
you know, left it sitting around with the windows open. And well, it was unlocked. Yeah, I do. That's yeah. what that's what was reported. You know, it's back in the forties, so uh, people did that. They left the car unlocked. He didn't notice it. Yeah, nobody said anything because, like, oh, I guess my brother left that. My right. Brother thinks, oh, that's my brother. That's my brother's. He left it there. Right. So then he heard in the news that they were looking for this, and he was like, wait a minute. And so they bring this copy in. Yeah. And lo and behold, on the last page, it is a Fitzgerald translation, Fitzgerald edition, which means it's the bulk of it is in English, but as a nice little touch, they left Tamam Should in Persian at the end. And it was missing. There was a hole in the page where it was supposed to be. Ripped out, yeah. Ripped out. Like carefully, somewhat carefully ripped out in a rectangle. Exactly. And at first they thought, this doesn't quite line up, but they had it forensically analyzed under a microscope by a paper expert, and he confirmed that there was no question that this was the book, that that little piece of paper that was tucked down and had to be removed with tweezers from a pocket watch pocket on the Somerton Man, that's where this came from. And the book had been tossed into the stranger's car. Yeah. Well, it kind of reminds me of the little piece of parchment found on Oak Island. It really uh, does. Yeah. That, that's unrolled, and it's a big clue, and that's all you get Yeah, as far as clues go. So now they have the book that it came from. In addition to that, in the back of the book, there is what looks like some kind of code or a cipher Well, a bunch, yeah, a bunch of capital letters spelled out in a line that don't seem to make any sense with one line underneath crossed out the, uh, underneath the first line. And then uh, kind of like divisional markings, like lines drawn. But it's very faint. I think they have to use an infrared light to get enough contrast to actually read the letters, correct? I don't know about that. Oh, yeah, know. that's what I, I read. I, I, I did read that it was faint, but I don't know how they had to reveal it. But yeah, I that is... Uh, I, I can confirm that it was not easy to read. So some people have speculated that it's a, a spy code and that it's it's some kind of cipher and that maybe it's connected to the book and maybe this man was a spy. So now these spy stories are starting to emanate and there's all kinds of different directions that this might go. It's important when you think about these theories and, and the spy theory in particular to look at the context of the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam and that's something that we're going to be doing with a poetry expert in part two of this series. So rest assured, we're going to bring you up to speed on all of that. But for now, there are a lot of people who for 68 years have been trying to figure out what that code means, and nobody has been able to do it. And we're talking about experts, mathematicians, engineers, and supercomputers. Yeah. <laughs> and the RAND Corporation, probably. <laughs> They're recording this now. <laughs> well, they're yeah, we're, we're, it's Echelon yeah, yeah, that filters all of our stuff. So They're subscribers, I hope. <laughs> I, they subscribe to everything because everything is uh, every every bit of information is combed through. But even then, as we're seeing now, they're asking Apple. Apparently, they can't crack everything. So there you go. You know, Snowden says that's BS, and he said they can open that phone easily if they wanted to. Oh, they just want to open every phone. Maybe so. Who okay. Knows? Well, they don't have that. This is 1948, but they do have military cryptographers who take a crack at it, and they can't do anything with it. And so they even put it out to the public, like, hey, does, is there anybody out there that uh, thinks they can solve this? And you can see it on our website and in the show notes. Maybe you can figure it out. Good luck. <laughs> yeah. That is a major dividing line of theories here, because if it if it is a secret code, now we're looking at spy stuff, spook dealings. If it is gibberish or a shopping list maybe it's his grocery list and it's just a notation to himself and again this is a big theory that i think holds water it could be just his own personal form of shorthand 
Right. Then you're not ever going to crack it because it's not a. It's only he knows what it's about. It could just be a memory aid, like Roy G. Biv reminds you of the colors of the rainbow: red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, and violet. Well, there you go. See, yeah, it's like a mnemonic device to himself. People do that. It's not real common, but it, but it does happen. So they don't know what they're looking at. There's no numbers to it. It's just letters. That's true. Okay. And there's been a lot of work done on it, and we're going we're gonna to dive in deeper on that in the future. I did want to indicate, I think I forgot to mention this, there were two tickets on his person as well. There was an unused train ticket from Adelaide to Henley Beach. Unused is important because he, he never took that train. Yeah. And then there was a bus ticket from Adelaide to Glenelg, which is just north of Somerton where he was found. Yeah, it's pretty much like the little residential area that's there next to Somerton Beach, which I believe is a north-south running beach. Henley Beach is north of there right. by a few a few miles. Yes. Yeah, so it's so a longer it, walk. People have speculated, oh, well, he bought – maybe he didn't understand the area. He bought the train ticket unknowingly to the wrong destination and didn't use it. Yeah. The, and – you can go down a million different rabbit holes about why the unused train ticket, and of course we will. Well, yes, but what, <laughs> what, what appears certain, though, is that he's purposely in Glenelg for a reason. He's not lost. Even though he's not really a tourist and he's not coming there to live, it seems like his mission there is purposeful. So on January 12th, about a month and a half after the Somerton man was found dead on the beach, a suitcase came to light – from the station attendants at the Adelaide Railway Station. Right. The police had put out a call because they had exhausted all leads and theories, and they put out a call to any transportation hub, railway stations, bus stations. This man obviously didn't drive a car here, so he must have taken public transportation. So when you do, there's a record of it. So they asked them, hey, did, did anybody leave anything behind? Did anybody remember seeing anybody who looked unusual or, or not of the area? And what did they find? They found this suitcase. It had been at the station since November 30th, and that was the night before he was found. So they make an assumption that the suitcase might be connected. It's clearly been abandoned at the station. Or not clearly, but most likely after being there for a month and a half. Right. Nobody came back to claim it. Right. So they go to the suitcase. It's unlocked, which is interesting because it does have locks on it. Question is, why was it unlocked? We, you know, where was the key? Yeah. Has someone been through it? We don't know that. They open it up, and it has a lot of things in it. And I'm just going to quickly go through this list. Yeah. And you can just make of it what you will. A dressing gown and cord. A laundry bag with the name Keen written on it. A pair of scissors in a sheath that had been sharpened to a point. So... They were very sharp on the ends. Yeah. A knife in a sheath, which was also a a table knife. Yeah, a dinner knife, regular flatware that had been filed down with a grinder to be very short and sharp and and sharpened to a point. Yes. A stencil brush. Two singlets. I don't know what those are. Uh, That is a, uh, (laughs) that is kind of like a tank top. Okay. Yeah. Okay, good. A singlet. Wife beater? Well, that's what we would call it here in the States, but down under in Australia, it's called a Jackie Howe, (laughs) named after a legendary Australian sheep shearer who in 1892 broke the daily and weekly sheep shearing records across the colonies. And Is that for number of sheep sheared? Are you trying to get me into a tongue twister? (laughs) (laughs) Because, yes, it is the number of sheep sheared in a week or month. How many sheep did Jackie Howe shear if Jackie Howe sheared sheep? 
Well, it, it was it was a up. lot, but it <laughs> but the the legend is that he wore a blue singlet top while he did it. So from then on, it was known as like, well, that's look at that mate. Yeah. Oh, you know what? I promised I'm not going to no. Let's cut that. No, out. it's okay. I'm, I'm not going to. No, it's <laughs> no, too no. Late. It's burned. It's burned. <laughs> Luckily, I didn't launch into it. But uh, right. no. So there. Any anyway, get that's, ready for uh, crocodile Dundee, <laughs> folks. Here it comes. Do. <laughs> Uh, not <laughs> happening. But the idea, though, is that it's regular items for somebody that would be gone three or four days, maybe up to a week, and then some really odd items, which I can't imagine anyone packing. Some things, yes. Well, yes, we had also a coat shirt, a pair of pajamas, a yellow coat shirt, a singlet bearing the name Keen. Again, this comes up. Yeah, mostly spelled K-E-A-N. In With this e. case, yeah. In this case, it didn't have an e. On right. Another item, it does have the e. Right. Mark marked on it, and, and a tie, another tie, which had Keen written on the back of it in laundry marker. Another singlet with the name torn out. A shirt without a name tag. Six handkerchiefs. One piece of light board. This is another something I have no idea what it is. Yeah, I'd forgotten. I'd, I'd heard of it before. Eight large envelopes. One small envelope. Two coat hangers. One razor strop. One cigarette lighter, one razor, one shaving brush, one small screwdriver, which we've heard as recently as this evening was an electrician's screwdriver, one toothbrush, toothpaste, and one glass dish. Oh, wait, sorry. I thought I was done. That was just a page break. One soap dish (laughs) containing a hairpin, which is a female item. Yeah. Three safety pins. One front and back collar stud, one brown button, one teaspoon, one broken pair of scissors, one card of tan thread, which comes up later. That is the main connection between the suitcase and the Somerton man. One tin of tan boot polish, two airmail stickers, which would indicate that he was sending international mail, one scarf, one towel, an unspecified number of pencils, mostly the Royal Sovereign brand. Three pencils were H. No pens, by the way. So he's writing letters, but he's not writing them in pen, or he doesn't have a pen. He did not have a pen on his person either, which people have taken notice of. And in addition to that, the suitcase, oddly, had no socks in it. No socks and letter forms, stationary, but no letters, nothing written. Right. All tags had been removed that could be removed without ripping. Now, just a side note before I forget, that was a common practice in the olden days to label your clothes. So labels in or write your name in. And during World War II, a lot of things were rationed. So clothes were hard to find. So people would, you know, they'd go to the thrift store and get secondhand clothes. And what you would do, though, if it was somebody else's name, of course, you'd snip it out. And everything was removed except for this name, Keen. Spelt in one way, except in one case, spelled without the E. And so, of course, one theory, one conspiracy theory, is that whoever did this didn't mind bothering removing the, the Keen name because it wasn't his real name. It wouldn't lead back to him. And there's the other theory is that in an effort to hide all his identification, in addition to the fact that we told you that he had no identification of any kind. He had no wallet. He had no wallet. That's yeah. correct. Maybe he was a spy. Well, you know, I mean, it's just... You'll start to see 
leads going to different conclusions. And one is, if he has no wallet, maybe somebody just took it off the guy while he was passed out or thought he was drunk and didn't tell and never told anybody because it's theft. Or if he was there to end his life, he didn't need his wallet anymore. He didn't have any cash on him either. Except in the in the suitcase, I believe he had uh, he had some coins. Is that correct? I you know I can't remember. There may have been some coins in okay. there. I don't I don't know for sure that. And I, I believe I, he did not have any money on his person though, which is odd. Yes, that is correct. Not a dime on his person. And I did want to point out about the fact that he was missing eighteen teeth that we learned tonight from the professor, who we will name later. That. Actually, I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't learn this tonight. I learned this from his research even before I spoke to him this evening. But I guess back at the time, there was a practice of removing your healthy teeth so that you would have a good set of dentures later. <laughs> really? Yeah. Putting them in the bank. I guess. Okay. So for all you people who missed those days of yesteryear, think about that. <laughs> right. So the suitcase... We would have to make assumptions about whether or not it was his. Just because it was dropped off the night before he was found dead on the beach. But the other connection, because there was no claim ticket, which there should have been. That was missing, by the way. Yeah. There was not a claim ticket for the suitcase, which there's an implication that there's a possibility for the conspiracy theorists that someone took the claim ticket and went to the station and went through the suitcase and removed things. Ah. Or got something that they needed. Right. And maybe they picked the lock with the hairpin, which they then left in the suitcase. There's people that – I mean, mm. there's speculation of every possible kind. And I just right. want to say quickly, this particular episode of the show, I have a feeling is going to be propagated in some circles that are really dedicated to this case. Yeah. We are not throwing down the gauntlet. We are not trying to start a war with anybody. We know that there's the Unresolved Mysteries subreddit, which I am a huge fan of, but yeah. I, I don't – I'm a lurker. I'm probably going to post this in there, all even though yeah. Redditors scare me, and I'm one of them. Oh, boy. And yeah. it's going to come up in a lot of different places. If you have a differing opinion from us, please be respectful, because we're going to be respectful of everything that we're saying. And we're not saying that we're right about anything. We're just going to try to present all the facts that we can. We're going to tell you what we think, but yeah, who knows what is really going on here. Exactly. It's, it's like Oak Island. It's like – well, it's pretty much like every show we do. We've gotten a few, not many, I got to say, critical comments, raising valid points, saying, like, well, hey, you shot this down. It's like, no, no, we're not, it, we're not dismissing anything because, again, I always make this point. We can't tell you what, what really happened, but we can present things that have been found by others and research that has been done by others to point to some conclusions, and we'll just tell you what makes more sense to us. This is one of the coolest things for me about doing this show because when we started this show, I had a fascination with these mysteries. You and I had been talking about them for years. Yeah. We both had a repository. We had a folder we've been keeping because we planned to do the show. But there's things that you start to learn once you really start diving in as deep as we have dove into <laughs> – is that right? <laughs> yeah, right use of that? Good enough. Yeah. As deep fine. as we have dove into our stories up until now over the past year and a half or however long we're going on. You start to see these patterns, and it is a thrill to recognize patterns across a broad spectrum of mysteries. It's a thrill to see the humanity in them and to start to understand the different personalities and the things that are at play whenever people have come together to try to solve a mystery like this. And I think the first lesson for me 
was and, – and there's particular episodes that I can say have really taken me to school on this. It's Amelia Earhart and then Oak Island and then this one as well and, and even Dyatlov Pass, although yeah. it's a little more one-sided, the research on Dyatlov. There's a few theories in there, but you start to realize that schools of thought develop and they become very prominent – and everyone who's in their particular school believes very much in their own theory if they have one. Right. And a lot of people are trying to be dispassionate, but everyone can't be. And it's it's impossible to rule out confirmation bias. E- even for me, as as we go through these stories, I find myself leaning one way or the other. And and you and I will get to discussing that in our conclusions, which will be part three of this of this multi-parter. But it's really fascinating, and I'm pontificating and being boring. So. No, no, it, it, no. I think you're making a good point. Anyway, that we're, we were just putting it out there that this story leads to areas of espionage, to murder, to passion, or it's just an, one natural occurrence that happened. And, Occam's razor. Yeah, all this stuff spiraled out. They, Many cults have been started that way. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> all right, so here's what we're going to do with the rest of this first part. We're going to talk a little bit about some of the players, both the main players and the ancillary characters that are associated with this story. But before we do that, I wanted to just quickly remind everybody that we had recently joined a collective of podcasts that are similar in nature to ours called the Dark Myths Podcast. And you can find them at darkmyths.org. There's a website there. You can go through and pick some things out. There's historical fiction. There's drama. There's history-based podcasts. Everything has a kind of a punk sense about it, which I really enjoy. There's some really good shows there. We highly recommend if you're looking for stuff to get you through our research periods or my spring break road trip, then take a look at darkmyths.org. All right, so before we wrap up part one of this episode, we're going to talk about the players, what I call the players in this case, and because it's some fascinating people. I want to start with the Somerton man himself. Now, we've talked a little bit about him. One of the things that's interesting about him is when you think about this case, if you, if you, it is something that you already know about, or for those of you that are sitting at a computer while you're listening to this episode, you probably immediately Googled it. What's going to come up are two autopsy pictures that are almost iconic when you think about the case. One of the things that I found as we did our research on it was that they couldn't look less like him than he actually looks. And that's one of the first things I really want to point out is that you start to realize – and we came across this a little bit when we were covering the KGC and some of the Old West stuff that we've looked at. When you look at these pictures of people who are dead – Emperor Maximilian? Yeah. (laughs) Is that one? They look really weird. They look different. (laughs) They look way different than you think they're going to look. And when you look at the pictures of the Somerton man and you think, hmm, does this guy look familiar? Or if you're trying to place him at all, you're not going to be able to place him because he doesn't look like he did when he was living. And those autopsy photos of him, which is a profile and a straight-on shot of his face, were taken – Months after he had died and been in a freezer. We just want to make that absolutely clear. Yeah, fluid changes. You know, imagine you look— He was embalmed at that point, I believe. Yeah, was he? Right. And so they flushed out the bodily fluids and replaced them with formaldehyde or whatever it is. He kind of looks like Daniel Craig on a long bender here. Yeah. (laughs) 
He's not a not a bad looking guy, but he, again, what he's saying is that there's once again showing no respect for the line. Forrest oh, Burgess. come on now! Who's going to complain? Nobody knows who he is. He has no apparently Eventually. no well uh, well possibly yeah possibly we might we're know getting, some relatives. We might be getting to that. Yeah. So, but what we're saying here is that there was a forensic modeling done in the form of a plaster cast. That's right, uh, a death mask. Yeah. And, and it's uh, a bust because it includes his shoulders. Correct. It is a bust. And it was done by a taxidermist, I think, who worked with the police. The point about the bust, though, which is interesting, and I, I had read this later on in my research. So it's, again, it's fun to find little things that uh, get you excited, is that with the plastering and the bust, there's bits of hair in there. Uh, from the dead man. So there's still DNA involved. That's right. And that's going to come up again in the future. And you know what? We'll, we'll go ahead and we'll tell you about the hair right now. They miraculously found some hair stuck in the plaster and they did some DNA testing on it. More of the cursory type of DNA. Yes, yeah, there's different levels, and and yeah. they get very expensive. But to do a basic pass on it, the hair was an exciting find for them, though it was very sure. surprising because the Somerton man is buried, and uh, attempts to exhume him have been met with resistance. Not for any great conspiratorial reason, as far as we can tell, mostly governmental reasons and uh, family reasons. Family reasons. It's it's considered by many to be kind of macabre and eh, disrespectful. Sure, right. But it, the hair, yeah, they ran some tests on it, and they were able to determine that the maternal line of the Somerton man belonged to haplogroup H, of which there are many subgroups. Let me tell you right now, if you get on Wikipedia and look up haplogroup H, oh, there's like fifty subgroups and. According to gentlemen that we'll be naming shortly, who we spoke to for part two of this series, it makes up about 40% of Europeans. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not really yeah. narrowing things down for us too much. No, no. He was a white guy. Yeah. That's we know it. that he was definitely born on Earth. Yeah. <laughs> well, in the, in, you know, in the, uh, yeah. So, so we're going to rule out the alien theory. Right, yeah. right. Well, no, but you, you, uh, <laughs> Uh, maybe not yet, but what's interesting is that because this is hinges on another big theory Forrest is can't that, let that uh, one go. He wants what? To, you want to keep the alien one in play. Where <laughs> the, the alien theory? <laughs> really, not so much this one. There's yeah. other ones where it's it's a fringy alternative, yeah. and I might let that sit out there. But uh, no, this one's a very terrestrial kind of a mystery. Yes. Uh, but but speaking of which. Again, every little thing we say ties into another theory of uh, conspiracy and origin in that they thought this man perhaps might be Eastern European or, again, hitting the spy angle, Eastern European, but trained to be British, Australian, American. Yes. That happens a lot. Uh, it happened in World War II quite a bit where they would get uh, – the Germans would get Americans – well, German-Americans who had been schooled in, in America or grown up mostly uh, in America, and they would use them as double agents because they had perfect accents. Yeah. So we mentioned things that sound crazy, but things like that do happen. They do indeed. And in, in this case, though, his nationality is a big question because they've just not been able to nail it down. Now, the coroner and the chief emeritus pathologist, I think they thought he was British. And that's the thing. If he's Eastern European, that really ties into the spy thing. Yes, it does. But he had a bunch of American objects on him. Yeah, so, a few, yeah. And when you start looking at the spy thing and then the American objects, you think, uh, it was he an American agent? Or even more critically, was he a double agent? Right, right. 
and that's going to come up. Boy, is it going to come up. It's going to yeah, come that'll up be, in spades. Yeah. No, you've done a lot of research on, on articles of the clothing, the tie. Yeah. Where did that come from? The thread that was yeah, used to repair his pocket, all that stuff. For okay. Now. All right. Secret for now. No, no. So, we're, yeah, again, we're trying to dangle this in front of you yeah. kind of as a cliffhanger. But what we're saying, though, is where this is left or where we're leaving because it. Because we love you. <laughs> no, it's like we have to – really, it's, he has to leave. So yeah. he can't I edit four hours of material. I won't – I cannot yeah. drive – Across the southwest of America and edit at the same time. It's not advised by the Highway Patrol. But look, (laughs) if you're following along and you're wondering how all these people play into this, we're going to go down the list here of just some of the major characters and uh, not go in too deep. We will do that for the theories part. But here, Scott's going to, I think, mention just who these people are that well, are involved. I, yes, and we had started with the Summer to Man, and before we part from him, I do want to make something clear about the appearance thing, which I was mentioning a, a minute ago. Right. Those two photos are not the photos you should be looking at when you're trying to figure out what he looked like. There is a gentleman involved in this case, very, very much involved, one of the probably primary researchers on it. There's a couple of them. There's, there's two or three super high-level guys on this in terms of their devotion to figuring out the answer to the mystery. Yeah, very smart, academic, logical approaches. Yes. Are you referring to the oil painting or the, the well, artist, I'm, the I'm artist re- representation? Yes. I'm, I'm, I'm referring to uh, Professor Derek Abbott. Yes. Who is a professor at the University of Adelaide and has been working on this case with great fervor and having his students work on it as well since 2007, I think, but it, it got real serious in 2009. Yeah. There's also retired detective Jerry Feltus, who's written a book on the subject called The Unknown Man. This is a renowned book that Professor Abbott recommended very highly to us, and I've ordered. It's on its way from Australia, and the way that I know that is Mr. Feltus got in touch with me via email just a few days ago, and he has also expressed an interest in letting us interview him. So we're going to be doing that in early April. And then there's a gentleman named Nick Pelling who runs a blog dedicated to ciphers and code breaking, and he has an interest in the case as well. And we reached out to him about talking to us, and he said that he was sitting on top of a breakthrough, something ah, really amazing. Right. And yeah. But it wasn't going to be out for a couple of months, so he told us, you're a few months too early. It's not really a good time for me to talk to you. However, I wrote him back, and I said, Nick – when that breakthrough comes out, will you please contact us? We would love to interview you for a follow-up. And he said, sure thing. So, okay, cool. So, so we'll have maybe an update. We will have an update. Yeah. But one thing that we did get now, and by now I mean we recorded it today, and I don't believe anyone <laughs> else has done this, especially yeah. podcasters that have covered this story, is a three-hour interview with <laughs> Professor yeah. Derek Abbott. Yeah. Now, well, I'm going to cut the, it down. Don't worry. Don't be nervous. Yeah. It was three hours out of his life. He'll never get back. <laughs> but probably a good, uh, I would say, a good maybe 90 minutes of really Juicy good, stuff. solid, yeah, very yeah. solid commentary on the case by somebody who has spent years. years. We spend we spend days, maybe even weeks, yeah. uh, researching something. But this guy is in, he's in the thick of it, you could say, on a lot of levels. And he's really, yeah, he's he's got some solid stuff to tell us. Yes, he does. And we'll be sharing that with you in part two of this series, which you should be looking for somewhere near the end <laughs> of the first week of April. I apologize <laughs> for the delay. Been, I'm glad it's so vague. Uh, it's yeah. really, no, no, no. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a lot of work. Cutting it down is a lot of work. Yeah. But I have recently found a friend who is an editor, and 
He may be working on it while I'm on the road, but we don't know. No pressure, John. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Direct shout out. Uh, but no, it's it's uh, not because we've tried to in- introduce the story here in broad strokes. Name just the, the, the minor and major elements of the evidence that was found, the setup of how he was found, what's been known about him. But to take even further, Professor Abbott is going to give you a little insight, you know, involved with his research and where he's at. Yes. And and also he's had some students, I believe, electrical engineering students, working on the deciphering. Yes, eliminating eliminating ciphers that don't work. And this has been going on for years and it's going on as we speak. Yeah. With a new set of students. So we have a very in-depth interview with him, which we just finished recording. He's sending us a ton of pictures, which we used to make the promo that some of you may have seen for this episode, which is on our YouTube channel. And also I released audio as a mini cast of it. There's even a photograph of a Freedom of Information Act document that he got that it is a worldwide exclusive for Astonishing Legends. <laughs> no one else has seen yeah. this, and it pertains to the Somerton Man mystery. Well, I'll say one thing. Oh, you want to end there? No, no, no. I'm, okay. not, ending. I'm not ending. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'm just... Yeah. That's right. just a little body language. All right, I see. <laughs> he did a conductor's wave. Here. But what, uh, no, what was interesting... We use our though, hands a lot when we're yeah, talking. Yeah, I'm, I'm, it looks like I'm throwing things at okay. him mentally, but... What I was going to say, what's interesting, though, is that when you get done listening to part two and Professor Abbott, is that I think a lot of his conclusions are what I started out with. Not so much the details, because I didn't know it, of course, because he told us about them and and as I was reading about it, but kind of the direction of where this is going. Some of it locks into what I first had. And then, as we said before, like it's like the 48 hours program. You start seeing other things like, well, maybe it's this. Wow, maybe he was a Russian spy. Well, maybe somebody else was too. You start getting into the weeds, and you got you, you start getting pulled these other directions, and then uh, something happens: the clouds break, and you realize, like, okay, well, maybe that's not such a credible thread, right? But a fun one that you're going down, and that's why we present it because, and that's where we go. Yeah. We take you down the fun threads, even if we've gone down them and found them to be dead ends. You deserve to know the story because the story is part of the fun. Yeah. That's why we do the show. Yeah. It's fun to tell the story whether it's true or not. But the thing to remember is that in some of these fun stories, they get to the end and they still hold up as plausible. Right. That, yeah, that's a good point because we may say they're dead ends to us, but you may not. And that's perfectly fine. If you find some research and you think that that angle holds water, we can only look at it and say like, well, you know what, the person telling that, when you look at this eyewitness accounts, and that's one thing here, there are several eyewitnesses who saw the body the night of. And people who came by later, and we're talking like weeks and months later, because again, the the police put this way out there uh, for anybody to come forward. There's people who saw somebody possibly carrying this man, a well-dressed man carrying the Somerton man to his location. Yes. Eleven years later, a witness came forward and said that night he was walking down the beach and he saw someone walking with a man over their shoulder in the direction of where the Somerton man was found. Well, that totally changes the dynamic because, again, one little factoid here, the shoes, as seen by the coroner and the chief pathologist, were highly shined. Spotless. Spotless. Not like somebody who's been traipsing around on the Glen beach. Elg all, and the beach on sand all day. So that's a little odd. But what it points to me, and again, this is our being detectives here, is he was dressed well enough. He's not wearing coat and tails going to the opera, but he's dressed well enough to maybe go see someone. Yes. Someone he's trying to impress a little. That brings up one of the more interesting, the the very first most interest, boy, 
I'm talking real good. <laughs> it's midnight, folks. I just want to let you know this is we do this because we love you. Well, it's one of my I don't know if he's going to leave this in, but one of my favorite quotes, and I believe this is Steve Martin in one of his books. Uh, sometimes I have a way with words, sometimes not have way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So the next most interesting character or player in this story after the Somerton man is Jessica Ellen Harkness, who later became known as Jesse Harkness or Joe Thompson. And we're going to keep you up with all these names. Yeah, and, no, f- and I'm not saying yeah. there was a sex change here. Joe, yeah. like J-O right. Thompson. I don't know why I felt compelled to point that out. Anyway, but <laughs> yeah. Jessica, Joe, and she also had another nickname that was – she apparently applied to herself. Yeah. Justin. J-E-S-T-Y-N. Which she spelled, capital J, capital E-S-T-Y-N. She did write it that way in Alfred Boxall's edition of the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam, which she gave to him. (laughs) And he, by the way, is still alive. We're going to get to all this later. Yeah. This is another man that she gave a copy of the Rubaiyat to with an inscription in it, and she signed it Justin, capital J, capital E, little s Little T, little Y, little N. Justin, a made-up name. Right. But There's all is, kinds of inside information on that, which yeah. we're going to come to. We've covered every aspect of it. This is one interesting aspect of this story. It's Yeah, it's a ways back, 1948, but there's still some people alive. And now, yes. a lot of them have passed away since then. But it's kind of like, I, I love these things that are maybe on the cusp that, you know, it's kind of like Amelia Earhart. A lot of, yes, it was World War II. So a lot of those great guys that were interviewed for that. We got so passed, lucky, the documentarian. Away. Yeah, he interviewed yeah. all those folks and, and most of them are dead now. Oh, yeah. I mean, if they, we and, didn't have that stuff on film, you wouldn't know about the witnesses that supposedly saw her on Saipan. Right. If you haven't heard that series from us, you should go listen to it. It has a lot of sound effects, maybe too many. <laughs> Well, but it's just, still a really fascinating. Yeah. There's uh, just breaks for the sound for the sound, uh, uh, yeah. you know, uh, panoply. I, I, yeah, it was a little bit. Uh, anyway. But what, no, what we're saying though is uh, those people, some of those passed away a week or two after they were on tape, right? And I'm just hoping ca- that doesn't happen to us. No, no, but for <laughs> <laughs> us. But in in this case, though, there are still some people that were alive and that were interviewed because it wasn't that long ago, and people who were willing to talk and come forward with their side of the story. So that really makes it interesting because then who do you believe? Here you have somebody giving their eyewitness testimony or they were directly involved with the people who were directly involved at the time. Yeah. And they're telling you one thing. And then there's people who say, well, they may not be telling all the truth for perhaps espionage reasons. Yes. Yeah. Well, so so here's the thing about Jessica – when they fished that copy of the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam out of the back of that car the from well. Dr. Yeah. Francis, the unusual suspect, yeah. they found a phone number in the back of the book. And when the police called that phone number, they found Jessica or Jesse Ellen Thompson. Actually, Joe Thompson at that point. I think she was right. already going by Joe Thompson. And they went to her house, which was a five-minute walk from where the Somerton man was found. Mm-hmm. And they presented her with a few questions, and there's more specific information there that I'm going to let Professor Abbott share in part two, because he covered it in a very interesting way. She initially had said that she did not know the Somerton man, but she was familiar with the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. And eventually they brought her down to the police station, since that number was in there, and they revealed the bust to her that the taxidermist had made 
Was he a taxidermist? I didn't know that. I did read that I somewhere. I knew he made the bust. Maybe but... that was a hobby. <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> but seems hey, a little not, weird. Well, not a bad... Uh, not a, well, he's, <laughs> look, you're dealing with dead flesh, okay? Yeah. So maybe it's... You know, okay. Uh, I'm sure the, the pottery teacher at the uh, at the college <sighs> there didn't want to do that. Yeah. So, no, he made a cast that looks... It looks pretty good. I mean, it looks like a fully formed uh, human uh, bust. Yes. Coming back to one of the many points I probably didn't draw a conclusion to earlier about his appearance and not looking at the autopsy photo is that what you should be looking at is either the cast itself Ah, or, most recently, there's been a 3D CGI rendering of the cast, which is – you can find a YouTube video of it being rotated. And if you can't find it, you can find it in our show notes. But where it rotates all around, you get a good look at them. You can also look at the cast itself. And in addition to that, Professor Abbott commissioned an oil painting – that is symbolic of what would he look like now? What does he look like? What might this man have looked like when he was alive? And coming back to the point that we were making earlier about how different a body can look after it's passed away or been embalmed or what have you, the differences are – Professor Abbott actually made the point in our interview with him. It's like if you take a look at – Marilyn Monroe's autopsy picture, and, and this is macabre, and there's a, there's a few mm. of them, and I, I can't recommend for everybody that you should go online and look at people pictures of dead people, but I did after he mentioned that in some of his written work, and it's true. There, there's at least one picture where she's lying down, and you would not recognize her. And it's not just because she doesn't have her traditional makeup on. It's She looks very different. And as Forrest indicated when we talked about Emperor Maximilian from the KGC series – or even Billy the Kid or all these stories from the Old West, what you find out is that the facial structure changes quite a deal after it's dealt with rigor mortis and lividity and time and embalming if that's happening or is it propped up, is it in a freezer or whatever. Very big changes can happen. So when you're thinking about what did the Somerton Man actually look like, you should be thinking about the bust or the painting, which was only just recently made. But the bust and the two autopsy photos don't look anything alike. And conspiracy theorists have already proposed that it's because there's different people. And there's a note. I I can't remember who it refers to. There are literally 50 or 60 people associated with this case, and the names are all listed on Professor Abbott's webpage, which we'll have a link to as well at, at the University of Adelaide. Yeah, there's a there's a listing of a tremendous amount of documents. That, yeah, I mean it's it's a it's a three month rabbit hole if you yeah. want to go down it. Uh, but yeah, it's a great listing of the uh, police reports, whatever could be found. A lot of these original reports have been lost. Yes, there's a note somewhere where somebody said first body disposed of or something. Oh, really? But it's the way that you read it. I agree that that's kind of a stretch to think that there were two different bodies, that there's a conspiracy afoot there. Not that there's not conspiracies associated with this case, but just in that case, I think that that was a misinterpretation of a note that was made about how the body was going to be treated after the autopsy and everything. I just yeah. want to make that clear. But if you want to know what the guy looked like, you should not be thinking about the two pictures that come up at the top of the Google search. What you should be thinking about is the bust and the CGI rendering of the bust, the 3D rendering of the bust. And then the, the, the last point that I wanted to make about Jessica before we move on from Jessica was that she was brought to the police station and she was in the presence of the bust and she was unable to look at it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I, th- I believe it was uh, Detective Sergeant Lean showed her... The plaster cast bust, 
and he thought that she was going to faint. Yes. He thought that she she just she looked at it, looked down immediately, would not look at it again and continued to look at the floor for the remainder of the interview. The whole time she looked at the floor and Professor Abbott told us tonight because he had interviewed him that he was so concerned about the fact that she was swaying back and forth. He thought she was going to pass out. He was standing behind her with his arms out ready to catch her. Yep. Yeah, uh, Paul Lawson. Yes. Right? Yes. Yeah. Lawson. Yes. Yeah. He was one of the guys. But yeah, he was, he basically thought that's the effect that she's going down. This. Yeah. That, that, and of course she was like, I don't know the guy. Ooh. And yeah. then it was like almost really ready to, uh, to faint there. So obviously she knew the guy. Yes, she did. And we're going to get way more into that in parts two and three. But let's talk about Jessica's husband, a man named Prosper Thompson, who actually went by George Thompson. And at the time that she was going through this, she was known as Joe Thompson, J.O. Thompson. Jessica and Joe had a little boy named Robin Thompson. The interesting thing about Robin is he was probably about a year old when the Somerton Man was discovered. The next interesting thing about Robin is he looks exactly like the Summerton Man. <laughs> well, I mean a lot. Yeah, yeah. And it's not just looks. The genetic abnormalities that we mentioned earlier in the show, both the dental and in the case of the ear formation, are exhibited in Robin Thompson. Or I should say were exhibited because Mr. Thompson sadly passed away in 2009. Yes. From cancer. However, he – if you see the pictures of him and you see the pictures of the Somerton man, not the autopsy ones, you will see a striking similarity. And we're going to get into more depth on that and really go down that rabbit hole in a major way. But the, the main thing to consider is that what we're telling you is that we at least and Professor Abbott – and by the way, we want to make something abundantly clear. We were able to successfully interview Professor Abbott. We did reach out to Jerry Feltus, the retired detective who wrote the book, which I ordered and don't have yet. He has not responded and he is very hard to get in contact with. I don't know if he's going to do an interview with us. We also reached out to Nick Pelling, who I mentioned earlier, who said he was on the verge of a major breakthrough and would yeah. talk to us later. We did talk to Professor Abbott, but just because we talked to him doesn't mean that we are exhibiting strong confirmation bias towards his point of view. That's I correct. Right. Yeah. He's got one line of research and study and conclusions, and we believe, though, that he's very, very credible. But, yes. again, but again, that's just one line. Yes. And other – these guys are, are no less credible. That's right. Everyone's credible in their own way. Well, he's uh, <laughs> uh, Jerry Feltos was a you know senior detective sergeant for the South Australian Police Force. Yes, and this landed on his desk, I think, in the mid seventies as a cold case, and he's been studying it ever since. Right, and he's going to come at it though from a police officer's perspective. Yes. So th keep which that in is mind. very different from how Professor Abbott's coming a at it. Absolutely, yeah. because to a police officer, look, there's real world. Things that happen that form your opinions just from being on the street and being in the nitty-gritty of this that Professor Abbott's not going to have uh, insights yes. uh, to, into human behavior and vice versa. That's Professor right. Abbott is going to have some other insights and lines of thinking and research. Well, he's going to excel yeah. at clinical analysis. He's right. a physicist. He holds a doctorate. He's an electrical yeah. engineer. He understands probability. There's He's got a lot of things going 
in that direction yeah. that are different from your man on the street detective. Right. Both of which deserve equal amounts of respect. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. No, they're just two different ways of approach. And sometimes they yield the same results, sometimes different. So that's what we're prepping you for because they'll diverge slightly as far as their conclusions, correct? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And, and the other thing that we want to say is that we are drawing a clear line between Robin Thompson, who was named for George Prosper Thompson, who was the husband of Joe Harkness, now Joe Thompson, we're saying that we believe, and Professor Abbott believes as well, that Robin was the son of the Somerton man. He's convinced. Yeah, I think he's. He's, I think he said ninety nine point nine percent. He did say that. Yeah, okay. and I'm fairly convinced as well. And I was even before we asked him that. So there's that aspect of the case for us to discover. That means that the nurse who would not look at the bust, who seemed to essentially almost pass out when she realized that he was the dead man, had a child with him. Yeah. And not only that, she was no longer with him. At that point, she was involved in another relationship, although right. to the degree at which that relationship was happening is questionable because she had already been, was being referred to as Joe Thompson, but they were not in fact married. She had not gotten married to Prosper Thompson until 1950. 1950, yeah. yeah. A few but years she, after this. Right. But she had on the birth certificate for Robin, yes. Thompson's last name. That's right. So at this point, she's made a decision to cast her lot with George here. Yes. And as the dad. Yes, as, the dad. As Robin's father. Yeah. And that he – and then this guy's going to take care of me. I like him. But nobody knows the exact living relationship in 1948, December 1st. That's not known clearly, but they do know that she, you know, he was in the process of getting a divorce from his first wife. Right. So at what point, though? Well, I, 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 actually, you could backdate and know when she actually hooked up with possibly the Summerton man. Right. But little is known as to what he, what was he doing? Why was he back in town? Was he there to visit her? And... That's right. What? And this brings us back to yeah. that point, which I, I don't think – maybe I made it in my head but not on the mic earlier. A few weeks, six weeks or something like that before the Somerton man was found, a neighbor had testified or indicated – not testified, but indicated yeah. to the police that she saw a strange man come to the door right. of Joe Thompson's house and tried desperately to get somebody to open the door, and Joe was either not home or did not answer, right. and this gentleman left. Uh, she could did, not describe him, yeah, but she did say that someone came. And and I just... Wasn't there some testimony or, or police interview material that said he then went to a neighbor's house to ask about her? Oh, that might be right. That might be right. Yeah. I I th well, and I think Professor Abbott, from, from what I remember earlier today, said that that may not be credible. So here, you have all these little things that are reported by people, and you want to go with them because it's eyewitness testimony. But as we all know, eyewitness testimony is often faulty, either purposefully or just by you know natural human mistake. You, you didn't see what you thought you saw. But each little statement, though, makes a big deal of where this thing goes. Did a guy carry him down to the beach, or was that somebody just trying to get grab some attention? Right. There's an inmate of New Zealand's Wanganui Prison, E.B. Collins, who claimed that he knows the identity 
I mean, that's there's right. People, I forgot about no, E.B. Yeah. Collins. I wanted to ask Professor Adam right. about E.B. Collins. You, you send me a note about that because we, we might need to hop back on the phone about E.B. Collins. Right. Well, that was uh, 1959. So right. it's a, some time has passed. But you, there's a lot of people coming out of the woodwork here. Same thing with Amelia Earhart. Yes. Uh, and again, speaking of, of people claiming things that seem to have some validity, that Monsignor in New Jersey, I believe, that said, like, yes. no, no, she's one of my parishioners. Yeah. And the woman would say, no, please stop saying that. Yeah. I'm tired of being bothered. Yeah. And uh, so it's just, who knows why he said that? Maybe he really believed it. Right. Maybe these... By the way, to put a finer point on, on what Forrest is saying, yeah. there was a Monsignor in New Jersey who indicated that Amelia Earhart had lived and was living anonymously under a pseudonym in New Jersey after her disappearance. That's what Yes, said. right, exactly. That's and if what you want more details on it, listen to the Amelia Earhart. You can, you can listen to that, yes. Yeah. But that's the point here is that you have not I much... I remember that. That I am very impressed right now, especially this late hour. Uh, but you, you have to keep in mind, though, there's uh, not a lot of physical hard evidence, which everybody wants. You want to see that ticket that he has in his pocket. There's no wallet. There's no driver's license. There's nothing. Yes, and we'd like to remind everyone that the suitcase has been destroyed Yeah, as well as the book. And people, how could that happen? How could anyone let that happen? And that's a good point. But I guess the stuff was getting moldy. It was getting smelly. It was a cold case. And they needed to clean out the evidence room. People were probably getting sick. Who knows? (laughs) I've got black mold. Yeah, 1986, right? Yeah, 1986 is when that stuff was disappeared. And it's a tragedy because it is such a poignant case. However, I will say we have links to several videos which were graciously provided initially by Professor Abbott's webpage, but I had found them in other places as well. But there's a 1978 three-part series on YouTube, each part being about 10 minutes, that was helmed by journalist Stuart Littlemore, Australian journalist Stuart Littlemore. That's got some really amazing stuff in it, which we're going to talk about in the next part of the series. But not the least of which is the suitcase was still in existence. And yeah. there's a, a lot of shots. They bring it in. They put it on the desk. They take the contents out. They talk about the contents. So on the plus side, you can actually see this suitcase on moving film, which is pretty cool. And there's still photographs of it as well. But in terms of the real world, it does not exist anymore. Right. Well, you know, even when they buried him, I believe the police – the thinking by the police at the time was this could be a murder – there could be larger implications when you're – I know when some people might be out there might be thinking like, well, this is just a dead dude who was in a love affair, jilted, maybe committed suicide. That's one big theory. The bigger, bigger, bigger theories is that this has something to do with Cold War espionage. Yes. Well, uh, and- tied into the biggest stories of the Cold War and espionage. Yeah, and if you want to Google something in the meanwhile while I'm on spring break, you can look up Project Venona. Yep. You can look up Kim Philby. You can look up the Cambridge Five. You can look up Woomera Rocket Base. Yeah. Uh, no, it, uh, Southern Australia was being uh, used for nuclear testing in with Britain and Australia in conjunction. Because you need big swaths of land that are uh, somewhat desolate to do yes. that kind of thing. Yes. So there's a lot of Cold War fever. The fact that this was taking place in 48 is also very significant. Yes. Because there was a lot of Cold War tension here. That's why people were riled up. We need to dig into this deeper. What do we know? Are our most precious secrets being given up? And this guy is this guy but part I mean, of it? Really? Would you find a spy dead on a beach? <laughs> yes, you would. Well, when has that ever happened? Operation Mincemeat. 
Which oh, come was, on. That's <laughs> not a real name of an operation. Yeah, look it up. No, wait. It, that actually uh, was making the rounds of the uh, the interwebs here last year, oh. probably around this time. It, I'm not sure why that it came up again, but it's kind of a fantastical story. But that's the point we're getting at is that you hear these things like, that can't possibly be true. Like What happened? Yeah, it is. Well, a corpse was planted with seemingly real top secret information that was designed to fool the German high command into thinking that the Allies were going to invade Greece and Sardinia in 1943 instead of Sicily. Well, it's just a few years earlier. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. This was a lot was a lot was going on at this time. It's five years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the war didn't last that long. Not like wars today, but uh, they, you know, a lot happened, and so you can see. I mean, this was top secret, of course, but the 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 corpse was planted with these papers and was allowed to wash up on a beach in Punta Umbria, Spain, and it worked. <laughs> they, no, because it was it was fake so well. Yeah. I mean, I don't know where you get the corpse. That's always a movie thing. Yeah, you know? that's not something you're going to volunteer for. Now, who was the guy that Jason Bourne <laughs> shot? You know, he right, with the right. hood on it. Never, never, yeah. never mind him. Just shoot yeah. the guy. Yeah. But no, things like that. You know, these fantastic plans do happen that change the course of wars. This may be a small part of it. Going back to Summerton Man. But it's like if a guy is giving away top secrets here to a foreign nation, especially ones that are trying – they're all racing to develop nuclear weapons, you want to know about it. Yeah. And you want to stop it and you want to root this out, especially if these people are moles. Planted – sometimes regular jobs. That Remember, was that New Jersey thing? Not to put you on the spot. The ring of 12 uh, Russian spies. About oh, yeah. The, and yeah. a Chapman and the yeah. – Yeah. And, and it's funny. And I don't mind you putting me on the spot about that because uh -huh. – one of the things that's really cool about where we live here in Southern California is the Reagan National Library or something. And I'm not making right. a political <clears throat> statement here. I'm The reason that I love it is because there's an Air Force One in there, a retired Air Force One, and I've taken our six-year-old to see it. It's truly amazing. The building is stunning. In fact, I'm pretty sure it's – I'm not sure where they, if, where they took Nancy. She just passed away. Oh, I feel right, like it might yeah, be no, over that yeah, way. No, she's right, right next to him. Of yeah, course. yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I know where they buried her, but I feel yeah. like maybe there might have been a service at this at the. But whatever. Uh, yeah. I don't know why I'm. It's a lovely out. area on the on the on the hillside there. It's and, an amazing uh, place, and I, I'm. Uh, you know, we try to steer clear of politics. I no, but, they, but I will uh, say I'm yeah. not a Republican. Yeah. But I, this museum is amazing. And when I went to it yeah. a few months ago with my son to see Air Force One, and there's a Marine, a retired Marine one in there as well. Yep. yep. There was a spy. There's a traveling spy exhibit going. Yeah, on. and uh, well, you were with me. <laughs> yes, it was. Forgot. Yeah, Duh. it was that Sorry. memorable. Yeah, yeah. No, I, it's not. That's not about you. Okay, I get in trouble even with my wife. I know. I remember things that I did, but not who I was with. Of it's course, one of those things. The the point is though, they they had the whole span of technology at this time, oh, and the and Operation Mincemeat conducted yes. by. MI5, Military Intelligence Section Five, the yes. British, uh, which uh, doesn't exist. None of it does, but but they but they do things when you do like the, this. The, with the Gray Line tour in London or whatever. Oh, they, they drive not, by the building, building. they like officially tell you it's not in there. Well, there you go. Area fifty one doesn't exist officially, right? So you can't sue them. Right. But yeah, what we're saying though is that there is a direct connection that will will make probably more in the theories part that at this moment, I think within the week or within a few days. Australia got some very high-profile British intelligence visitors yes. that were there to discuss Operation Venona, as well as some other high-profile things, Roger Hollis being one of them, 
who is believed connected to the Cambridge Five. Yes. And Kim Philby. Go ahead and look them up. Yeah. Wait, but we will be covering them in the future. But again, you might get bored in the next yeah, week. Yeah, he, he, yeah. We don't mean to throw a bunch of names out, yeah. but what we'll do is though is is that just listen don't forget the names. Just listen though to the connections. That's always the most important part. Yes. Is that maybe it's connected, maybe it's not. But there were some big dealings going on that a lot of people have connected to this. Yeah. So again, you may think that this is just a 48 hours murder mystery that's happening. On the other hand, you could draw a line, a red piece of yarn on your crazy chalkboard there with the with the pinned up photos all the way through to nuclear secrets. Possibly. Yes, yes you can. Yeah. All right. Well, getting towards the end of uh, part one of this series, I did want to mention some really fascinating pieces written by Ruth Balant, who is an Australian cultural historian. And we have links to a couple of articles that she wrote on the Summer to Man case, which are super fascinating. But this one, excerpts from one of them appear in this story that we have from California Sunday, which is a story about Professor Abbott. I just want to read this real quick because you have to understand – Adelaide a little bit to understand this. To understand the Somerton Man case, Abbott told me, and this is Professor Abbott who we interviewed, told Ruth Balant, you do have to know that Adelaide has a reputation for these things, end quote. It's a city of churches and of weird, sick murders. And apparently when Salman Rushdie visited Adelaide in 1984, he called it, quote, the ideal setting for a Stephen King novel or horror film. Adelaide's homicide rate isn't abnormally high, but what it lacks in volume, it more than compensates for in creepiness. The city has become known as Australia's murder capital, in quotes, the site of a string of gruesome serial killings and mysterious disappearances. In 1966, three young siblings disappeared and were presumed kidnapped after a trip to Glenelg Beach near Somerton. They were never found. In the 1970s and 1980s, a shadowy group of upstanding professional citizens of Adelaide, known as the Family, drugged, sexually abused, and murdered young men. Those crimes were never fully solved either. Last year, police in South Australia announced $13 million in reward money for information about the murders or disappearances of 18 children between 1966 and 2000. This article goes on to point a few other things out, but I just wanted to read you that excerpt. It is from the California Sunday Magazine and was written by Graham Wood. And it's it's a really fascinating article, very well researched, interviews with Professor Abbott and a lot of good photos of him as well. Now I feel like kind of visiting. so <laughs> I do want to go there. Not to experience those things. But, <laughs> so it's Grey Friars and now Adelaide. Yeah. No, you know what? Our, our Australian fans... And New Zealanders or Kiwis, you know what? They're great fans. They're very loyal. Uh, they write us a lot about things we should research that are Australian mysteries and legends and uh, and some great supernatural kind of aspects of it. And uh, so we're hoping to cover this big one here because we think that it will play out into a larger, interesting story for everyone. <laughs> That's going to wrap it up for part one of this series. We'll be back in April with parts two and three, which will feature a lot of interviews with experts on the case. In the meantime, please go to bit.do slash Somerton, S-O-M-E-R-T-O-N, and sign the petition. And if they get enough signatures, it may go a long ways towards helping solve this mystery once and for all. 
Special thanks to the Astonishing Research Corps and our lead researcher, Tess Feifel. Most importantly, we want to thank our listeners. You can find us online at astonishinglegends.com, as well as Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Google+, and Instagram. Copyright Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Good night. Good night.